And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, <laughs> Christmas can be complicated. Yeah? That's true. It's true. Sometimes the older you get, the more complicated it gets. For sure, the more kids you have, the more complicated it gets. Uh, if there's a divorce anywhere in your family, uh, that complicates it. People bring people to family gatherings that you don't like, and they have the audacity to bring them into your house. I think for men, it's, it's especially complicated. I'm going to say most complicated of all, perhaps, because, well, I'm just, for one reason, our wives lie to us at Christmas. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. If you're married, you've been married at all. Oh, my wife's in the room. Hi there. Um, <laughs> You know, the, here's what I, I think is true, that the, more, the longer you're married, the more consistent the lie is. It, or if you're dating, just so you know, just you're dating, your girlfriend is lying to you at Christmas. Because when you say, what do you want for Christmas? And she says, I don't really want anything. I don't really need anything. No, what do you want for Christmas? Really, I don't want anything. Woe to the man that believes that lie, okay? And you... You wake up Christmas morning and there's nothing under the tree with her name on it. You said you didn't want anything, dear. You will not have a very Merry Christmas. So it makes it kind of complicated. Uh, the, the thing that kind of uh, goes with this is the pressure to surprise people with what they want. Right? Like, but, and maybe you don't struggle with this. I'm terrible at this. I don't even really try. But there's this pressure to surprise people with exactly what they want and what they've asked for or what they've hinted quite strongly for. And we've all done this. You know, you give a family member or a friend a gift and they had no idea they were going to get that and they're genuinely surprised. And they're like, thank you. I didn't see that coming. Um, and that's cool. It's a, it's a great moment. It's what you hope for. It's, it's also rare. Surprising somebody with a gift like that. Uh, and then giving people exactly what they want as a surprise. I don't know how you pull that off. I suggest you take them to the store. Uh, they take you to a specific section in a specific store in a specific aisle, and they point to a specific thing, and then you send them to another section, and you buy that thing, and you sneak it out to the car and try not to get you know, picked up for shoplifting at the same time because there's nothing suspicious about you cramming something you know, inside your jacket. And then they get exactly what they want for Christmas. So you're supposed to surprise people and you're supposed to give them exactly what they want. How do you do that? It's complicated. Now, honestly, for, I make light of it because for some of us, maybe the most complicated thing about Christmas is fa the family thing. It's who's going to be sitting around the table 
Because last year you were with his family, so this year you got to be with her family. And then you, got, you were with your family, now you got to be with that family. And you got this whole thing to sort out, and nobody can really remember what happened last year because nobody took any pictures and nobody wrote anything down, and we're going to have this argument again. We have it every year. And somewhere along the line, you know, then there's a divorce in the mix just to complicate things. And now it's not just, you know, your family and his family. Now it's, it's, it's your family and his family, and it's his father and his girlfriend and his mother and her new husband. And your parents are still together. They don't really like each other, especially at Christmas, but they're still together. So it just gets crazy and it gets super complicated. Can you identify with this at all? Yeah. Okay. So no matter what you do, someone is going to be mad. Their feelings are going to get hurt. They're going to respond to something that you said that might have been insensitive. But the other complication, and ladies, please be patient with us when we ask this question. But just about the time that we're pulling into the in-laws' driveway, I don't know why we wait till then to ask the question, but we always do. We know we'll be a better guest if we get some clarity, so we go ahead and we ask, honey, exactly in your mind, how long, I mean, I'm not rushing you. I just like a time frame, that'd be good. Because if you say two hours, and for two hours, I'm gonna be like social and relaxed and I'm all in. It's when I don't know and I get a little wound up and I have to like, I have to pace myself. You know that. It's because so when I go in there and there's an infinite, indefinite time period, I just, I just can't. That's why I drink so much and that just kind of ruins, uh, it ruins the whole thing for her because now she's like, I just want you to relax and have a good time with my family. And we're thinking, I can, I just need some parameters so I know how much I can enjoy this thing. So yeah, it gets complicated. I don't have a magic wand. Uh, we don't have any pixie dust today to sprinkle all over you for this Christmas season. Hey, let me uncomplicate Christmas, points one, two, and three, and we'll figure it out. I can't do that. So in the midst of the complexity that is Christmas, there's one thing that shouldn't be complicated, and that's the message of Christmas. But unfortunately, sometimes, sometimes, the message of Christmas becomes as complicated as the gifts and the scheduling and the family and everything else. And the reason the message of Christmas sometimes gets, like, we know it gets lost, but sometimes it actually gets complicated. And the reason for that is, is it's not your fault, first of all. It's my fault. It's our fault. It's the preacher's fault. It's the church's fault. So if you're one of those people who only goes to church uh, on this Christmas and Easter, first of all, welcome back. We're glad you're here. We're here every Sunday. You're welcome to come. We'll save you a seat anytime. We're just glad you're here this morning. But as pastors, we wonder... You know, um, why do, you know, why do people only come on Christmas and Easter? Well, I've, I've figured out, so I'm going to tell you. Because when you show up at uh, most churches, it confirms their suspicions, you know, like, oh, that's why I don't want to go to church. I do the holiday thing because it's kind of expected and it keeps my grandmother happy. But I was just, just reminded why I don't go to church, why I don't bother with it. I always forget why and I show up at Christmas and it's like, oh, yeah, that's why. Because we as churches do a masterful job at complicating simple things like the message of Christmas. When it comes to church and maybe Christmas and maybe Easter and people show up and they haven't been in church for a few months and they, they know the Christmas story quite well because they don't miss a Christmas Sunday. But it's, so it's not like there's anything new. But sometimes um, after church it's kind of like, what was the point of that? Today, uh, we're not going to even try. We, it's, we, we can't uncomplicate all the peripheral things about Christmas, your schedule and your family and your situation and the shopping thing that you still have to do and all those expectations. What we want to do for a few minutes is kind of uncomplicate the message of Christmas. 
Because if there's anything in the world that we should understand at Christmas, it's the simple, simple message of this week. Watch this video. It's the Christmas season. It's that time of year when you unbury all the decorations from the attic in the garage. You put up the Christmas tree. You find that missing stocking with the reindeer on it. You clean out the gutters so that you can string up the lights before it snows or you're the last dark house on the block. The kids have road games, early practices, that huge history project, and final tests to study for, along with five different Christmas parties and your son's extra holiday hours at his part-time job. When can you start driving again? Don't forget to write down the dates and times for the performances and the rehearsals of the programs at church, at school, and at the senior center where they want you to come dressed up as an elf. In tights. Then there's the shopping. Your son wants a new gaming system that can read his mind. Your daughter wants a doll that you're going to have to make payments on. Your sister's emailed you three times asking what you want for Christmas and why you haven't just gotten an Amazon wish list set up already. Your spouse thinks maybe the two of you should just get each other a new furnace for Christmas or maybe just donate all the gift money to orphans in Cambodia. And then there's the secret Santa thing at work. What's a white elephant gift again anyway? The school sent home a note saying half the kids have strep. Your spouse came home with a box of double extra strength cough medicine and a case of Kleenex boxes. You're pretty sure there was something wrong with that last piece of fruitcake you just ate. And your daughter's so stuffy she looks and sounds just like Rudolph. Christmas is at your parents' house this year. And at your spouse's brother's place down south. And at your aunt's place on the lake. If the weather's nice and your kids sleep in the car, you might just make it to all three. And you should make sure that you stop in at the office party for at least a little while. Also, your friends are in town, so could you set aside a night of the week to do a special Christmas just with them? Oh, and can we do it at your house? Your boss needs you to make sure you get that project done before Christmas, even though he's going to be out of town until January, and you have to cover for your coworker who spends every Christmas in Hawaii. Also, none of your contractors will answer the phone after December 15th. Plus, you need to make that green bean dish you're so good at for Christmas dinner, and that peppermint dessert all the kids love for the other Christmas dinner, and something gluten-free for Uncle Dale, and a backup ham just in case your mom's stove blinks out again. Also, there's cookies and carols at the church on Saturday afternoon. Everybody bring two dozen. Oh, and don't forget, Jesus is the reason for the season. Merry Christmas. I'm just going to read a couple verses from the Gospel of Luke. Many of you I know are familiar with Luke chapter 2. And it goes like this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. And can I stop there and say, this has got to be weird. Don't be afraid. Oh, no problem. This happens all the time. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you good news. That little phrase, good news, is where we eventually get the word gospel. It literally means good news, or it means good story. It's like the angels are saying, well, don't worry about what's going on here. We're about to start a good story, and you're going to love it. You're going to really love this story. And they said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Not just the shepherds, not just the Jewish shepherds, Not just the people of that era, not just the people of that area or region, but this is good news for everybody. When somebody says, I have good news, they say that to you, it means I'm going to give you information that's going to make you go, that is awesome. 
They're going to give you information that isn't going to cost you anything. Good news means here comes an opportunity. Good news means your life is about to get better. When somebody says, I have good news for you, you don't immediately start making a list in the back of your mind of the th things you think you're going to have to do in light of the new information. You're, you're all ears. You're in. And when the story of Jesus begins or began, this is the good story launching. The message of the story of Christmas is 100% good news. The message of the story of Christmas is 100% good news. The message of the church is 100% good news. And if your feelings about God or Jesus or the church are less than good, perhaps somebody hasn't made it clear. Perhaps it's gotten so complicated with everything else that's been said and added on. Now, let me tell you about the lens through which we're going to look at this. And as Pastor Todd said, we're going to try to uncomplicate things for you. You're familiar with John or St. John, he's often called, not the city in New Brunswick and not John the Baptist, the Apostle John. He was a follower of Jesus. He was so close to Jesus that when Jesus knew he was about to die, he said this to John. John, I want you to take care of my mother. I want you to be like a son to my mom. That's how close John was to Jesus. This is central to the story. In fact, tradition tells us that John took that uh, responsibility so seriously Eventually, he moved to Ephesus, and if you were to go to Ephesus today in that part of modern-day Turkey, you could visit a place where John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived, where he took care of her in her old age. John has seen Jesus do miracles. John saw Jesus die. John saw an empty tomb. John saw a resurrected Jesus. John had dinner with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead, and John himself lived to be an old man. And as he got older, it occurred to him, I should write down this story of these things that I remember Jesus doing and all the things that I remember him teaching, because he'd been with Jesus, you remember, from the very beginning. And these weren't stories to John these were personal experiences that John begins to write down, and he writes an account of Jesus' life. And people want it. So they begin to copy it, and they copy it, and they copy it, and they copy it, and it, and, and it circulates through the whole part of the world that they were living in, and then out into Egypt and to Europe and all over the place. And about 300 years later, they took a copy of a copy of a copy of this document that John wrote, and they include it with a, a, a bunch of other ancient documents, and today we call that the New Testament. And John also wrote some letters to some churches because there were some churches springing up, you can imagine. And they were saying, hey, we have questions. Hey, John, you were with Jesus. In this particular situation, what would Jesus do? So John wrote letters to these churches. Imagine having a letter written by someone who had actually, literally, physically been with Jesus. 
And when they put the New Testament together, they took some of John's letters and they included those in the collection. And then he wrote another document that we call the Revelation. And John had a vision of what was going to happen at the end. And so they put that revelation or that vision that God gave him in the New Testament as well. Thank God we have that. So he writes this account that we call the Gospel of John. And he's telling this story about Jesus' conversation with a man. The man's name was Nicodemus. Now he was a religious leader, very respected in the community. And in the middle of the story, as he's explaining how Jesus explained to Nicodemus who he was, who Jesus was, it's as if John gets so excited as he's writing this down, he pulls out of the story and he kind of blurts out on paper, this is how the whole thing comes together. I can't wait until the last chapter. You just have to know who Jesus is. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, at the very end of the Gospel, he says, let me tell you why I'm writing this to begin with. And I've written all this. I'm not writing this to tell you everything Jesus did. He says, if I were going to write down everything we saw Jesus do and everything we heard Jesus say, there's not enough time. There's not enough paper or whatever he was writing on. He says, what I'm writing, I'm writing so that as a result of my account of the life of Jesus, you'll believe that he is who he claimed to be. Wow. And that's how he ended the gospel account. So in the middle of this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said this. Nicodemus said this. Jesus said this. Nicodemus said this. And right in the middle, John just blurts out this extraordinary statement. And it's the most famous statement in all of his writings. It could be the most famous statement possibly in all of the New Testament. And the reason it's so famous and the reason it's so often quoted is because in just a few words, the Apostle John, he's looking back on his life. He's looking back on his time and his experiences with Jesus. And in these few words, he manages to somehow grab the essence of the good news that the angels proclaimed the night Jesus was born. I want you to tie all this together. So John is writing, and he gets so excited, he just kind of blurts out in the middle of this story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, in verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Wow, that's good news. Let me tell you how this rattled around in the minds of those Greek-thinking Roman people in that culture. See, in the mind of the Romans in the midst of, the, of most Gentiles, uh, because, because of the influence of the Greek philosophy that was all around them, gods, and I put a small g there, did not love human beings. This was the philosophy of the time. Gods didn't, uh, didn't love people. They played with people. It was fate. It was what happened in the world. They believed it was just the gods having their way with humanity. We still have people today that believe that stuff. And John, looking back in his encounters with Jesus Christ, said, I think I've got it. God loved this world so much that he gave his one and only son. And John's going to go on and tell us that there's a way that we all become children of God. But as he's writing this, he's thinking, yep, yep, we can all 
become children of God. Hey, but there's something else about Jesus. There's something unique about his relationship with God the Father. There's something unique here. So God gave what was most valuable to him, his one and only son, who was most valuable to him, and continued that gift, and he gave his life for the world that God loved. And we just put a period right there. That's remarkable good news. It's incredible to think that the creator of the world loved the world so much, and he gave his only son for it, period, end of story. But John's looking back, and he knows the whole story. And he continues. He gave his one and only son. Now you are invited into this story. That deserves a wow. That whoever... By the way, that means everyone, no distinction, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, men, women, children, whoever believes in him. Now this is where it gets deep and complicated and hopefully not too confusing, but deep. John is writing this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever... Whoever, whoever, how should I say this? And he chooses one of the most common Greek words. It's the word pistuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-O in the English, which basically means believe. He chooses the word believe because he knows that whoever believes, and then it's like he gets stuck. And because the word pistu means believe like I believe that, or I believe in, or mm, I've heard that, and I just believe. And generally in Greek, they would take a little preposition, remember your grammar lessons, a little preposition, like our preposition in, except in Greek it's epsilon nu, and they would attach this little preposition to the word pistuo, so it should be I believe in love, and I believe in Santa Claus, and I believe in heaven. Uh, we say those things all the time. And John is writing, and it's like he's thinking, but that doesn't capture it. It's not like I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that there's a heaven. I believe that there's a Santa Claus. It's more than that. It's much more than that. So John now takes a different preposition and we know it's intentional because it's the first time the sequence of words like that shows up in the Greek language anywhere, right here in the book of John. Very significant. He takes a preposition that means into or toward that we would use to say, I'm going to lean into somebody. I'm going to lean toward something. I'm going to lean toward you know, a certain kind of thinking or a certain activity. And he takes the Greek preposition eyes, 
E-I-S, and he puts it on the end of that word, pistuo, and in doing so, he creates a brand new idea, believes toward. In the Greek, there's no word for trust, just the word believe. And John, in this moment of trying to capture the essence of what uh, what is it Jesus came to do and what, what, what is it Jesus has asked the world to do in response to what God has done. And we, he, he puts these two words together and he creates the idea of trust that whoever trusts, whoever trusts in, whoever leans toward, whoever moves into, because it's not believe in, it's not believe that, it's an exchange, it's deciding, I'm going to place, hear me very carefully, all of my trust in what Christ did when he died on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts or believes in or believes into shall have. You see, because God loved, so he gave. And if we believe, then we receive the very thing he came to give us. He loved us. We believe. We receive. Here is what he said that whoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now this phrase, shall not perish but have eternal life, on the surface, you've probably maybe heard that before. If you took it literally, it means you won't come to an end, you won't cease to be. John says, If you do this thing I'm talking about, place your trust in Christ, you will never cease to be. You will continue on forever. And he grabs this little phrase that was very common in the culture, eternal life. It was common in that day because everybody wanted to live forever. Nobody wanted to die, and so the Roman emperors decided the best way to make sure that they never die was to become divine or to become deities. And so they decided to term themselves as deities so they'd never die. I would like to ask them how that worked, but I think we all know. Julius Caesar did this. Claudius did this. Nero tried to do it. They wanted to be the divine Julius Caesar, the divine Claudius because they thought if somehow Rome decided that they were divine and they were deities, they would somehow have eternal life. They would never die. Can I just sum that up? Everybody wants to live forever. John is an older man now. He's writing this and he's saying, no, that's not it. Whoever places their trust in Jesus, their life as they know it will not end, but will receive, and he decides to use this phrase, eternal life. And the reason he chooses this phrase is because it's a phrase that Jesus later used and defined. And he says, God loved, God gave, we believe. And then we have something in exchange for our belief. The good news is God gives us the gift of eternal life. Not long before Jesus' crucifixion,
uh, he prayed a prayer that has become uh, a pretty famous prayer, and John recorded it, and it's been preserved for us. And it's kind of in that prayer that he defines what he means by eternal life. So when we say and think of eternal life, we, we think go to heaven when you die. Here's some theological truth for you. That's never associated with eternal life in the words of Jesus. I think there's a heaven. I believe, I believe in heaven. And I think that when you place your faith in Christ, you go there when you die. But Jesus is not, here in John, he is not associating these two ideas. Here's how Jesus defines eternal life. So check this out. This is in John 17. Jesus is praying, and this is what he says. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Look at this next phrase. Now this is eternal life. And he defines eternal life for us. And John records Jesus' definition. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive eternal life. But what is eternal life? This is what Jesus said. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship. That they may be introduced to you that they may have intimate knowledge of you, that they may come to know you. It's purely relational. Jesus says, I want to give humanity a knowledge of and a relationship with God our creator and with his son. In another place in his account, John writes, to all who received him, what do you mean received him? To those who believed in his name. Oh, these are parallel ideas. And he defines receive him with the word believe. So to these, he gave the right to become children of God. Believing is how we receive the gift. God loved, God gave. How do we receive what God gave? We believe and we receive. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. And as if that wasn't clear enough, John wraps up this portion of this account in John 3 that dad was, was speaking of with a verse that follows verse 16. Because John's thinking just because he interjects this. These are not the words of Jesus. These are the words of John. And he says, just in case I didn't make it clear, just in case you heard something different from what I intended, just in case, let me make it absolutely clear here. So verse 17 says, God did not send his son, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if you've ever felt condemned by Christians, they're the ones who've sent you the wrong message. If you've ever felt condemned by the church or by a preacher, we're the ones who have communicated the wrong message. John, who knew Jesus, ate with him, walked with him, watched him die, saw him after he rose from the dead, took care of his mother, asked all kinds of questions. He's writing his account because like, you need to know this. People need to know this. And he makes sure that we understand that God did not send his son to shake his finger in your face and tell you what an awful rotten failure of a sinner you are. That's not good news. That's not new news. That doesn't help anybody. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the Christmas story. Amen. That's the beginning of the gospel. God loved, so he gave. When we trust in him, when we believe, we receive the thing that he's given us, which is relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. 
And John's like, I don't know if I can explain this very well. I can't go any deeper than this, but here's what I know, that when a man or woman or child places their trust in Jesus, they receive a connection, they receive eternal life through him, and it's purely relational. They become children of God. So the angel could say then with no qualifiers, I'm bringing you good, 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 good news. Good news of great joy for all people. Today, a brand new good story begins. In the town of Bethlehem, a baby's been born, a savior, he's Christ the Lord. So the question, of course, is has there ever been a time, a moment in your life where you made this exchange, that you decided to quit trusting in you, trusting in your prayers, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your good intentions, trusting in your generosity, in your church involvement, in the good-bad scale, whatever your thing is that you're trusting in, where God would say to us, that's all, and that's all well and good, but as long as you're trusting in you, he said, here's what I know about you. As long as you're trusting in you to get into God's graces, you have no idea where you stand with God. You know how I know that? Because you can't find anywhere in any religious literature a systematic list that is so clear that you always know where you stand with God based on your performance. That list does not exist. And Jesus says, I got some great news. I want to take that whole scenario away. I want to take that fear away. I want to take that uncertainty away. I want to take away the unknown when it comes to your standing with God. I want you to know for sure. I want you to know that you are in relationship with your heavenly father. And like any gift, all we have to do is receive it. So how do you receive it? You receive it by placing your faith, your trust in what Jesus did on your behalf when he died on the cross for our sin. So I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And the prayer, a prayer doesn't make you a Christian, all right? The reason we pray in this is it, prayer is just talking to God. And so the exchange is, God, we're just going to declare that I'm no longer trusting in ourselves. I'm no longer trusting in me. I'm placing all my trust in your son. I want to have eternal life. I want to know you. I want to become a child of God. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking some of this is interesting and the history and the ancient languages and all that, and it's kind of, some of it's even helpful, but you're not quite there yet. I get that. That's fine. I'm not pushing you into something. Here's what I want you to know. Nobody here is trying to talk you into anything. If you don't believe, you don't believe. You can't, if you're not convinced, there's no point in pretending that you believe something you don't. Uh, we're a church where you can, you can unbelieve and you can disbelieve and ask your questions all you want and come on in. Like we'll even, like you can be a part of us. You can serve. We're not that picky. Because you, you, you can be convinced to commit to something but you can't make yourself believe something that you don't believe so we want you to be in a place where maybe the lord through his holy spirit can just bring you to that place through your process but here's what i want you to know if a year from now a month from now six months from now next week whatever something happens something kind of rattles around in you in your mind and in your heart where you start to doubt your disbelief if you find yourself leaning into, leaning toward believing in Jesus, if you ever begin to reconsider, well, maybe there is something more to that. Here's the great news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever and whenever you choose to believe in him, he will give you, if it's your last breath, if it's a moment of desperation, if it's after all the things that you're so ashamed of, if after all the, he loves you, 
and he sent his son for you and there are no restrictions and there are no qualifications and there is no time limit, whoever, whenever you place your trust in his son, that's your way of receiving the gift of a relationship with God, to become a child of God, to experience what Jesus calls eternal life. What could be better news than that, right? And if your experience with Christians and your experience with church has been anything less than that, I'm sorry. That's our fault, not yours and not God's. Let's pray together. If today you would like to declare, you know, this Christmas season, this is it. This is the, I, I'm ready to cross a line of faith. I want to make sure. I'm not sure I ever understood it this way before, but I'm ready. Would you just pray this with me? You can pray it silently and you can change the words. These aren't magic words. You just pray, and, and what a day this would be for you. What a week this would be for you. To, for the rest of your life to never wonder where you stand with God. Pray something like, Heavenly Father, I believe you are my Heavenly Father. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for me as a payment for my sin. And now in this moment, I'm placing all my trust in his death on the cross as a full and final payment for my sin. And I'm not trusting in my good intentions. I'm not trusting in my church attendance. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm not trusting in my, my charitable contributions. I'm not trusting the promises I've made all of my trust is what, in what Jesus did when he died for my sin. And now in this moment, in this Christmas season, I receive the gift of eternal life. Thank you for bringing me into your family to become one of your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can look up. If you prayed a prayer like that this morning, I'd really love to know about it. Because this is just the beginning of a journey. Uh, we want to walk alongside you as much as we can. We want to celebrate this decision with you. We want to help you in any way that we're able to. So for a few minutes now, we're going to stand together, and we're going to, the band's going to come, and the worship team, they're just going to lead us. We're going to sing some songs, and I hope you'll worship with us as we sing. But maybe while we're singing, you could take a, a 30 seconds, grab a Connect card near you, and fill that out. And there's a place there that says, Today, I, I decided to follow Jesus, or something to that effect. Fill that card out and leave it in the box and I'd be happy to follow up with you. I'll probably be around up front here afterwards for a few minutes too. Come talk with me. Um, if this was your day, you're surrounded by people who are celebrating with you in that, this moment in time. Thank you for choosing to include us in your Christmas week. And uh, right, we're going to watch a video and then we're going to sing together. Watch this.